Ooh, recording in progress. Sweet. All right. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh I'm beat up. <laughs> yeah. That's what working life will do. And, yeah, it's uh, especially uh working for a labor union for some reason. They just really love to have bad labor practices. But here we are. Um yeah. and that's why we're here to talk about Karl Marx. And it's it's important that you said that because you know, when people engage with socialist politics in general now, things like trade unions are seen as kind of like the end, right? Mm -hmm. We will end in the space where there are like trade unions and collective bargaining and like a, a meaningful living wage and society will be better. Maybe there will be a progressive tax and then we can just get to the work of human rights or something like that. But as we will see today, we are taking an excursion from capital to go over Marx's earlier text um, published in 1848, um, the Manifesto for uh, Communism or the Communist Manifesto. What What is the official title of it? I believe it is a Manifesto of the Communist Party and then also called the Communist Manifesto. So it's a sh short book, four chapters. Yeah, I think it's I think it's where a lot of us get our start. I mean, compared to the most of the stuff we read, this is you can read this in an afternoon uh, mm -hmm. or an hour even maybe. Um, but I, I don't think that should hurt its veracity. I mean, whereas something like Capital that we're, we're reading now is, um, you know, a book full of theory. It's well researched. You know, Karl Marx, I almost just called him Karl, like I know him. <laughs> Uh, oh, <laughs> but you know carl is like uh, you know he's basically trying to turn his theories into a science he wants that kind of um you know the, the, for there not to be a doubt and for him to be taken seriously where the communist manifesto is is fun in some ways because it is uh written to be uh more of a call to arms um you know, famously in uh, in Leninist and Stalinist Russia, uh, you know, it, people weren't expected to necessarily have read all the theory, but the Communist Manifesto was something that you were kind of expected to to have read and to know about. Um, and I think this goes with its its history too, right? Like, so you mentioned that it uh, it was published in eighteen forty eight, February I think twenty uh, first, eighteen forty eight. Uh, one day before the Paris Revolution happened, yes. so we shouldn't make any kind of connection there because Communist Manifesto was published in England and uh, things did not travel that quickly back in the day. Mm. Um, but but it but it's written at a period where revolution was in the air. Engels and Marx were asked to write this. Um, they were a part of a group called the Communist League uh, that was mainly a lot of German emigres, uh, although there were also some people who had been part of the 1839 coup in Paris. And this came out of, you know, other revolutionary groups, League of the Just. But, but the point being is that Karl Marx was basically asked to write a 
program of what it was to be a communist. And that's what this is. Yes, absolutely. And so when what we got into in the first episode on Capitol, you know, largely concerned uh, sort of granular details about production, about commodities, about their circulation, about the invention of money, which comes out of a very specific lineage of thought, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. in both England and France, you have um, mutual growths of liberal thought, mutual and diverging growths of liberal thought that lead to thinkers like David Ricardo and Adam Smith, which were influences on earlier socialist thinkers as we will get into uh, a bit later. Um, and so um, at this time in, in the late 40s, Marx is already doing his theoretical work, but he's coming out of it as an activist, as a journalist, and as a, a younger reader of philosophy. He was earlier part of the Young Hegelians, right? And in this, you see the when he talks about antagonisms, when he talks about, I think at some points, contradictions, right? Um, the, the very, the the kind of early forms of what is fully realized in Capital. But you also see things that Capital doesn't do so much, which is, as, as you described really well, Egon, the kind of polemic character of the text. And that was because in 1848, you have an incredible explosion of revolution across Europe that had been building for some years, right? In 1830, um, you have uh, the uh, revolution of the Orleanists, the July Revolution in France, which puts um, uh, Louis-Philippe in the seat of power and- Back to the throne. Yes. And sitting in the throne was what he was known as the um, the petty bourgeois uh, king. You know, he was a, he considered him a small businessman who had become the richest man in France. Um, and then simultaneously, someone would have a hip hop name like that by now. <laughs> petty bourgeois, bourgeois king, baby. Yeah. Um, um, and, and then also in Germany, uh, you have an extreme amount of work going into a um, furtive and powerful socialist movement. And, and then it, in uh, conversely to that, um, you know, in 1832, England sets up the parliamentary system. And so England, which was the opposition of the uh, Bonapartists in the Napoleonic War, um, they kind of both represent the conservative status quo, but also were able to realize earlier than some of these more radical states, France coming out of the French Revolution, um, and Germany, which had, and Prussia, uh, this group of states and, uh, and even unrelated states like Poland that be, were pulled in, um, uh, that had more political activity were beaten to kind of parliamentary and representative politics by the English. And, and so this all leads to 
a kind of a explosion of what uh, Marx uh, defines as the proletariat. But we'll get there. Yeah, um, and and I think it's I, I think it's important to set the historical like precedent for something like the Communist Manifesto because it's so like of its time and place i think in a lot of ways and because it is such a you know it's a manifesto you can pick it up you can read it in an afternoon it's um easy to just enjoy it and sort of miss these things right like you mentioned that karl marx was kind of blossoming into the thinker he was becoming out of both journalism and activism you know he meets Engels in 1844 or something like this. This is also when he writes his uh, economic manuscripts that sort of are, are kind of the the bud that blossoms into the Communist Manifesto, into uh, a lot of his work that is, um, you know, kind of what we know him today. Uh, but at the same time, like it was discovered posthumously, he was he wrote a critique of German idealism in the late 1830s. And basically, this is a long way of saying you've got, you know, to bring it back to the young Hegelians, right? You basically had Hegel, who in Phenomenology of Spirit is like, we have reached uh, the culmination of history. And, and that was seen in the Prussian Reich and in, uh, in, in the kind of enlightened monarchy there. And, and but, but also seen through kind of what was happening with the Jacobins and the and the French Revolution. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the, the reason there's a young Hegelians, there's kind of the left Hegelians and the right Hegelians. And there was sort of the old guard who saw, um, you know, like the Prussian monarchy as that the culmination of history. Um, but, you know, especially out of the French Revolution, you had this movement of you know, Karl Marx, Blanqui, um, much later on, Proudhon, but he, he comes from this lineage, you know. Um, Ferdinand LaSalle, who was another, like, major participant in all of this, and an interlocutor of Marx, with very different types of thoughts. Right, um, as well. Armand Barbet, but you've got these, these fellows who are, like, realizing that the Jacobin Revolution didn't go far enough, that that, but, but the you know, as he starts the Communist Manifesto, the specter is there. Mm -hmm. And he's writing this at a time where he kind of jokes in the beginning of the Communist Manifesto that that pretty much any establishmentary government or ruler um, is is calling their opponents communists or socialists, even if they aren't, and that it's this specter haunting Europe. And, um, and he's writing it in a time where where this was very real, you know, I mean, we talk about this stuff, I think, far more theoretically than they were. Yes, you know? absolutely. And and it's it's quite fascinating how now we're kind of after the Cold War and after kind of like the neoliberal bourgeois regression. And we'll get into the beginning of the book, which is about what does it mean to be bourgeoisie? Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. It, there is this um, return to that specter, but it lacks the kind of legitimacy of a material movement where people are out in the streets, where people are willing to overturn their governments, um, where people are, are willing to take certain risks of life that, you know, that freedom or death 
the death part, right? Um, in realizing something that is beyond the present. And it's it's difficult to understand because we, I think uh, through American teaching, all of uh, Marx is filtered through Stalinism, right? Mm -hmm. Is filtered mm -hmm. through his statist um, interpretation of, of Marxist-Leninism and the idea of a vanguard party, uh, you know, occupying the Russian state or the USSR and leading worldwide communism. That for, as Marx states explicitly, communism isn't like this single thing, though it is a single thing. It is an aid to a reinforcement of and um, a projection of all of the workers' parties and workers' movements around the world. And this could be from America to France. You're primarily talking about Europe and France at the time because of this first idea of the bourgeoisie. So maybe we should get into that so that we can start yeah, playing. Yeah, I, I, th I think that's great because, you know, and I think it's important to note they were Marx says about writing the Communist Manifesto, it, it is not against any left party. It is just stating a, an international aim. I mean, it is really this kind of the start of this internationalism um, because, you know, it, it, I think he was right in seeing that it would take an international movement to accomplish these things. And, and the social upheaval was already there, you know, just to mention the revolutions of 1848 when this was published. Um, you had a revolution of Palermo right before the book was published, day mm -hmm. after Paris in March. You had Baden, you had Munich, you had Vienna, you had Hungary, you had Berlin, you had Milan, you had Poland, you had Venice. In April, you had Moldavia and Dresden, May, Transylvania. Um, and then over the year, I mean, most of the revolutions lasted at most six months. They weren't incredibly successful, although there were six abdications of, of sitting you know, monarchs. Um, so it was successful in some sense, but, you know, it's like, this is, there was something manifest about what was going on and that, and that's why this is so charged, but, but I think you're right. Let's, let's start with, with the actual work itself and, you know, separating out as he does, what is the bourgeoisie? What is the proletariat? Yeah. And I think, and just to affirm what you're talking about, I think, many of the points within will lead to back to that historical context. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, clearly Marx is trying to differentiate something as new, right? And uh, he goes at length to define the bourgeoisie, right? It is a new class that comes out of conflict with, fe with feudal monarchies, right? So um, the, the bourgeoisie has certain characteristics, right? Obviously, there is what it is not. It is not the aristocracy, right? It, it comes out of feudal systems as the sort of business class that, that um, you know, created business, created trade, um, and that was subordinated often within various monarchic um states um but as as it, it as this class grows within it it 
they begin to demand some universal rights. And in this respect, they become revolutionary because they are trying to destroy the this previous epoch as Marx would define it. So rather than seeing history as like this one long continuity, he is subdividing historical moments based on the character of power and the character of the way that states ruled over their people and the way that though that ruling determined how people were classified right and so oh sorry oh yeah no i i just wanted to add that that yeah i mean it's what he identified the bourgeoisie right as coming out of the merchant class right Mm -hmm. who through feudalism began to have more and more power as they were able to amass more and more wealth and then as we're seeing you know in capital that we're you know that we're actively going through right now is that through the industrial revolution we had the like the bourgeois revolution as well as this technological revolution yes that made the accumulation of capital possible right and so you've got kind of multiple things happening at once where you've got this urban class that's becoming that is taking the place of the aristocracy it's no longer oh well my family has owned this land and all the tithes with it from time immemorial um but rather you know this merchant class that has developed wealth and developed power and is using that now to uh, both become the ruling class uh as well as create the the proletariat which is you know anyone who is forced to sell their time that you know basically sell their labor for a yeah. wage and and commodify themselves yeah so uh, i was just gonna say he's identifying this like historical moment where you know feudalism has died has passed um and with it is not only do we have a new ruling class but we have a new lower class as well which he calls the proletariat which is you know shouldn't be confused with um you know, um, uh, uh, like the feudal peasantry before. There we go, it. peasantry. Thank you. Yes, it's like it's another um, p word. Exactly. Um, and and there's as you were listening, the kind of uh, qualitative changes that the bourgeoisie gain throughout. Uh, one that you suggested, and which becomes central, is their property. That that these monarch uh, these monarchies. Uh, these aristocratic lines they controlled property and therefore in the feudal system uh were able to have peasants living on their land working sometimes for free sometimes for the right to have a space and have food etc and so with the bourgeoisie now they're they're transforming the way that society functions they're rapidly urbanizing society as he defines they're making uh society more cosmopolitan right so mm-hmm. with that urbanization you start seeing these new cultural facets new artistic forms this isn't stated explicitly but this is part of cosmopolitanism and and also it they have another side which is this um sen- sen- uh centering of law on jurisprudence right um on these concepts of sort of eternal truths 
things like justice. Um, and so these elements are just now, and it, it, it's interesting because the feudal period is so long, mm -hmm. but the bourgeois period, the movement from this period of the bourgeois to the question of the proletariat gaining power, right, is actually quite short, right? It's We're talking a couple short. hundred years. And and marked by this insane turmoil too, right? You've, it, I mean, it kind of starts with like the English Civil War, you've got the French and American revolutions. Um, you know, these weren't as political as we want to believe them to be there. I think they're much more indicative of, of this social change. Right. And and you mentioned this with this um, all of a sudden turning to jurisprudence. Right. This kind of enlightenment turn where, you know, it's not that, oh, well, our king is is been named by God. And so he must mm -hmm. be right, um, but turns to this more liberal idea of of justice and uh fairness and you know and and i'm sort of throwing quotes around these words but but also sort of not i mean they meant what they said that yes um you know and these ideas of liberty right that kind of haunt america to this day um but and and, and i would say like in the previous thinkers that we have approached kant and hegel they're kind of the end for marx in a sense of like the philosophical edifice of the bourgeois, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there were previous thinkers. You can go back to Hume and Locke, um, Hobbes um, in, as English representatives and later uh, or and concur concurrently, uh, people like Rousseau and, and Diderot in France who were part of the French Revolution who are who are articulating these ideas but by the time that it's reaching um marx's younger years there is a sort of naturalization of these ideas um despite what is happening on the ground which is an enormous amount of inequality so um i find there to be a great quote in the um uh section on the bourgeoisie um where uh mark says uh, a similar movement is going on before our eyes um and he here he's talking about uh, the, the movement of the bourgeois class modern bourgeois society with its relations of production of exchange and of property a society that has conjured up a gigantic means of production and exchange is like a sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. And so he is both recognizing the immense um, revolutionary power of industrialization, of the technology that is produced, of the um, ability of markets to like connect and develop the world with such rapidity and such transformation. But at the same time, he is also recognizing that these powers have extended outside, and this is sort of a precursor to what we talked about as alienation in the Capitol episode, but uh, these, these massive forces of the markets and of the bourgeois class have left their control and have and what is left in its wake are these proletarian workers right are these people who are 
take who are propping up the bourgeois business the bourgeois industry producing as he says in the same section uh their own grave diggers yes uh, which i really like you know where it, and it's kind of an interesting nod to hegel too in the uh sort of reference to the underworld and the under mm-hmm. uh, the underground and and of course this this idea that uh in this sort of uncontrolled process of capitalization that they are also creating this class the proletariat um whom you know he describes as as being an arm of the machine right um what does he say uh the work of the proletarians has lost all individual character and consequently all charm for the workman he becomes an appendage of the machine and is only the most simple, most monotonous, and most easily acquired knack that is required of him. And through this sort of dehumanization is creating this class that has no choice but to rise up and revolt against the, the bourgeois uh, and, the, and the chains that they, they build themselves. And, and what's really fascinating about it is that though this happens almost immediately out of it, you know, there is this there isn't this threat of the same threat of monarchic control of aristocratic control though it still exists and is what is being fought for the year that this is released um for for the proletariat he describes them as being relatively ungrounded right mm-hmm. there is work to be done for the proletariat to release to reach the conditions where they can revolt against the bourgeoisie right like the bourgeoisie had to develop over hundreds of years so that they could not only have the um you know means as in like property value money um weaponry etc but also just the ideas and the understanding of what is going on. So it's not enough to just be a worker and with other workers and say, I don't like what's going on. But here he is defining like what is needed, what must be thought, what must be removed and replaced mm-hmm. for the proletariat to succeed. Simultaneously, though, he is resistant to the idea that an individual socialist thinker in the mold of these earlier um, idealist philosophers, empirical philosophers, and, and other thinkers of economy and natural philosophy, that their singular idea can be the prescription for something that comes out of material concerns, material conflicts. And, and instead that the solutions are are determined by the struggle right and you know and and then so as he goes into the next section the proletariat or communism and proletariat uh whichever way he orders it uh you know i think that's one of the important things he observes is that this this power of the bourgeois of the bourgeoisie of capital is a social power right this isn't a king ordained by god or a conqueror or or some individualistic power but that that social power can only be met by another social power right yes. and and so this is is kind of a, a big part of it right is that like um 
and and actually some part of argument amongst Marx and some of his contemporaries where it's like, well, do we need to, you know, essentially cede the proletariat with these ideas or should we seek revolution now? And, you know, obviously, as we talk about the revolutions of 1848, etc., like these things were actively happening, but but there is this transition where from, you know, we, we mostly think of, uh, you know, epochs changing through these, um, you know, different cultures or something that come to power. And he's arguing for something different, right? And that's a, a, a social power to be fought, not, not an individualistic power, not a, um, even a cultural power, because he's arguing that the act of industrialization um, actually rips the proletariat of all their identifying marks that makes national identity matter because it no it starts to cease to matter because the differences that that uh, separated the German tradesman from the French one begin to evaporate in a bourgeois uh, society and and in fact that individualism and that notion of the state, as centering kind of human thought, human organization, and society, right? These are naturalizations of the bourgeois class itself, of, of the bourgeoisie. So it, there's going to naturally be an antagonism within the proletariat that comes up through this bourgeois society, wherein they are an individual, but they do not actually have these rights as an individual. What are what is being fought for at this moment is universal suffrage, the right for everyone to vote, right? Um, the commune of women, right? And this is a very important part for Marx um, because, like for instance, he talks about um, dissolving the family, right? Um, but what he's also pointing out is that the family within bourgeois society has been turned into a relationship of money, right? Money is passed down to your son and, you know, you put, you contain your power over your property through your family and the, at the lower classes. And I think this reson this should resonate very well now is not even a right of the proletariat. Um, we can look at this today when you know you hear right wingers and and even you know your Booker T Washingtonian um, liberals talk about you know the problem of the black family or something like that. You know, you know fathers not being in homes, right? It isn't an accident that this happens, but rather that without those moneyed interests, without this industrial relation, the family has ceased to have meaning because it doesn't do what it did in feudalism and it isn't allowed to do what it can within bourgeois society. So as Marx suggests, you know, when the woman is no longer a property, right, for the man of the house who is the capitalist, um, then it, what is necessary is a community of women acting of their own devices, working towards their own betterment. And, um, and that well, yeah, this is like, something, 
it, oh, it sorry. came up it came up in and i think this this was like hardly even research but it's just a radio program i was listening to where you know because of industrialization of course women are forced to work um and we could go into the long history of of women working because it's you know they were always part of the quote-unquote workforce and feudal times etc um but really the it's almost a bourgeois conception that uh, a woman would stay at home with the family but in for the proletariat yeah. where you're working 12-hour days in a factory um child care and working become really difficult things to navigate right and so there was a baby formula that had opium in it and so that way you could feed your children mm -hmm. before you went to work and they would basically be comatose for like 12 hours and then you'd go home and feed it to them again you know because because you're being asked to do all of these things and so this kind of yeah community uh, of women is was especially important for Marx because it is fundamental to breaking that system right that bourgeois system of patriarchal dependence of of extending that patriarchal oppression um so that was super important and you know it's funny at the end of this uh section uh he says the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to establish democracy. So like, there's your first point, right? Like, you know, we, we associate democracy and communism as these things uh, in fraught with one another fighting against each other. But yeah, in the original conception, that's not totally true. Um, and then, and then, yes, no, there, there, there are clear demands that he, he, um, gets into and it's it's very interesting that he when he talks about abolition of things he uses the word afebon right like he's he's talking about overcoming he's using an hegelian term and and we talked about the family and in conception in hegel and it it's something that's repeated here there in addition to these kind of apocal shifts right there are going to be demands, right, that are going to come into contradiction with what is the ultimate end of the movement. And I think it's quite clearly defined at the end of this section on the proletariat, what are the sort of rough things that we must go through before we can reach communism or this mm -hmm. proletarian state? So, yeah, you know, he's he's kind of beginning to lay out what he thinks is the program for this movement of social power from from the bourgeoisie to the proletariat and i think one of the interesting things about the communist manifesto oh excuse me mm, tacos <laughs> taco tuesday um but one of the most interesting things uh in the communist manifesto as far as all of marx works is concerned is that he he's actually very clear in laying out what he thinks needs to happen and um as i mentioned he says the first step is uh to raise the proletariat to the position of the ruling class to establish democracy to you know essentially give power to the proletariat by uh, a kind of public decree um and then he follows that uh and says that in doing so would centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state so in this democratic state run by the proletariat and um at the end of this section two he gives us 10 things 
that will generally be applicable to this process. Number one, he says the abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public pur purposes. So uh, the abolition of property as a private held entity and by default, no one can pay rent for land. So it's in some ways the return of the commons, but but I think beyond that, because it's not an indentured servitude, but viewing land as a public good, right? Yeah, and, and there's a, a very interesting moment that he has. I'm, I'm not sure if I can find it immediately, but I can give a rough paraphrasing where he, he talks about uh, the kind of fear of the bourgeoisie and their complaints about these demands. And he talks about them. They're like, oh, would you take the land of like an artisan or or like a, a, a commoner? And he's like, these forms do not need to be taken because they are not part of what I'm talking about. But also, they're also already disappearing under the bourgeois epoch, right? They're right. It's like under a these forces, argument, right? Like so it's entirely moot. The so artist like can't pay rent because you know, or, or it doesn't have or own like, property. Yeah, there's just, there isn't there yeah. isn't the artisan sitting in the, their little cottage making, uh, you know, to use our last week's example, violins. Right, like this is something that is disappearing. The violin is being produced in a factory by you know hundreds of workers who are now working for a boss. Right, so when he's talking about grasping this property he's talking about grasping it from major property own owners who have privatized it so that it that the workers who are participating in pr production and all of the people who are living in the world who cannot access that will be able to in some way through through this democratic process but also through direct control have some be able to derive some value from that right it's like the common misconception of of communism right it's like oh you're gonna kick me off my land and it's like no we're trying to cease the commodification of you needing a structure to live in you know it's just yes. like the commodification of our of our labor time right it's like you know in in even in feudal times you didn't pay rent you know, uh, yeah. you may have owed tithes or taxes and things like this, um, but it was seen as your inheritance in some ways that you yes. lived in this this or that hovel. On, there was a promise on that so people so live in a property. space. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, which leads us into the, the next one. So he's got, um, after the abolition of property and rents is number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Uh, which is, you know, something we're talking about today, right? Today, like, yeah. I mean, ba Bernie Sanders is on the bullhorn yelling for this. Leftists are still yelling for this. And in this regard, I think it's important to really question what people mean when they say someone is radical today, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. this is radical in 1848, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it has ceased to be radical to ask for those things in the present. And that's, I think that's just something we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about this birth of leftist politics. If we are still asking for a common commons for women, if we're still asking for a graduated income tax, 
Like, I are know. we being radical or are we simply like going to the basic ideas of the people who saw their as their the original problems of bourgeois society and capitalist society? Yeah, who saw this whole problem beginning, you know? And um, and he goes a step further to number three, abolition of all right of inheritance, right? So, you know, enough of, you know, keeping these inequalities through inheritance, right? Your people are accumulating this massive amount of wealth that they can never possibly spend in their lifetimes, but then passing it down to their progeny so that they are already given a head start yes. and already are provided capital. Uh, to continue the process um, for confiscation. And, and this is and this is certainly, oh, I, I was just simply going to say, this is one of the ideas that I think really when um, someone in the pre present, even a leftist, hears it, uh, will kind of recoil. Because mm -hmm. there's this inherent idea of the meritocracy and the, the fact that, you know, oh, your parents earned it and they deserve to pass it down, Right. But if we really imagine what would happen, that everyone would have to be reset at zero and that the value that you gain, you cannot keep it, right? Well, if you that, truly believe in a that, meritocracy, that, would, that, that is a meritocracy. That would be an actual meritocracy. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, uh, and, anyway. and of course, people cringe because, you know, there is going to be somebody who is like, well, you know, I've got, even if it's a meager inheritance, I've got something coming to me and, you know. Um, and, and so it does highlight the fact that this stuff does require a certain amount of sacrifice in one way or another from everybody, right? Um, yeah. But it's for the good and, of. And us in all. this regard, is yeah, and it's and in this regard, it's in it's in grave conflict with what I would consider the sort of anglophone moral systems where um, that that claim to be um um meritocracies like the ideas of john stuart mill and like utilitarianism mm -hmm. etc where um like there there is an idea that um you know while we're working for the common good that as individuals right we um have this sort of in inherent right to be self-interested and that self-sacrifice is sort of against human nature. But in fact, at, at a time, people work towards that self-sacrifice to develop society. And I think it is possible again, right? So we shouldn't just di disregard these like, oh, that's just not possible. We really need to think about uh, all the ways in which we can uh, destroy the current set of property relations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and so in the next few, we start seeing the, the sort of foundation for uh, Leninist and, and kind of Maoist thought and this uh, kind of state communism. Uh, the next few are um, confiscation of property of all emigrants and rebels. So if you leave the country, you don't get to keep your money or your value in the country. Uh, yeah. And the, which leads to the next one, the centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank uh, that has an exclusive monopoly on that money. So, you know, I, I think, again, this is kind of an altruistic look at this, right? That there would be a state run by the proletarian looking out for uh, everyone's interest, right? Um, or then all proletarian. Right. 
And uh, so we've got further centralization, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Um, you know, which if you think about this, this is like what everybody always wants, right? Like free public transportation so people can get yeah. where they need to go without needing to be, uh, you know, better than someone else, right? Um, I, I, I use that better than someone else pedantically, right? I don't actually yes. mean that, but like that's how value is given to individuals in a capitalist society, right? Well, think of the people who live in the suburbs and are able to drive by car on specific highway systems that are never going to be accessed by someone who is limited to a set of buses mm -hmm. um, in their local neighborhood within a city, right? And, and elsewhere, something that plays into this is the dissolution, which isn't in these, this list, I believe, of um of urban and con the difference between ur the urban space and the country space it may be in there but yeah no um, I, th I think it is in here yeah so okay. it's it's so actually we'll the we'll next one um because he talks about uh extending factories and the means of production to be something that's owned collectively by the excuse, excuse me those tacos uh by the state um but in part of that um Oh, he's talking about the improvement of soil. Yeah, the um, cultivation of wastelands, right? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. it, it, and in general, you can see that the idea is that the state, and and we must be clear, the state is being balanced by internationalism, and this is something that clearly gets lost in Stalinism and Maoism, and where I think um, Lenin's vanguardism somewhat obscures, um, is that this state while working for all people is in concert with many other groups that are doing the same and that ideas are being passed for mutual influence, mutual international betterment of people's lives. Right. And, um, you know, it, all of these things where the state is taking control, that is not a, a state that is separated from the democratic body right it's not right. a representative it's, state it's not supposed to be an authoritarian state like kind of how we all envision the state it's um you know it, it's he's really trying to set out ways to eliminate hierarchical like uh, imposed hierarchies in our social relations right yeah um and so this leads to the next one equal obligation of all to work right so you know it's like I was going to mention earlier when you were talking about this, this like production of the bourgeois sort of social structure, you know, in the 1860s is when you get this term called the flaneur, who, mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better thing to do, dandies about on his strolls, uh, admiring the beauty of the world, because he doesn't have to work. And or so, suffering. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is the idea that, that we all must contribute in, in whatever way we can. Um, and so that there aren't these folks who are living off of other other people's labor. Mm -hmm. um, and then this is what you were getting at. Uh, we've got number nine, uh, combining agriculture with manufacturing industries. So this is kind of the idea of uh, 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 abolishing the distinction between town and country and, and trying to find a more equitable distribution of the population. So, you know, and he's kind of responding to Engel's work in Manchester where uh, with the creation of modern industry and modern cities is the modern slum yes. and 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 giving people you know 
the ability to to have space to have a subsistence garden to you know um eliminate that the the sort of slum as as you know it would might be referred to today and and to return to an earlier point you know this abolition again is an overcoming it's a synthesis right in abolishing this distinction between the urban space and the country space by connecting it through a mutually controlled industry, right? You create a, a continuity of concern and need, right? Because we're all going to be eating that food. We're right. all going to be um, living off of the, the structure that is developed in the stead of private um, private industry. And so, you know, now our in America in particular, and many other countries, there are so many political conflicts that are determined by this idea of the rural and the and the urban, the city dweller and the country dweller, right? And that isn't necessary. That isn't inborn. That is something that is is particular of the bourgeois epoch. Now, obviously, cities developed before then. You can go back to uh, the medieval era and you would find more or less populated places with different cultures but largely it was it were it was places that were ruled by an aristocrat and then the peasants that surround them now we have two different groups of capitalists who you know present themselves as radically different but they are the same in that they are exploiting the labor of these two different cultures and society um yeah in different I mean, ways through different means he's really speaking about you know finding the connection between you know the farmer and the factory worker you know and Absolutely. eliminating that distinction um you know and, and, that especially existed in this time where it's like the factory worker this is a modern very new thing and you know farming is as whole is as old as society is basically um but identifying that that this is not a real distinction you know if you're part of the proletariat you're part of the proletariat whether you live in the country or whether you live in the city you're still being exploited by the same means and by the same process and quite and quite functionally um even today uh laws around labor that have given rights to the factory factory workers to workers in all industries are often taken from agricultural workers mm -hmm. you know that's the reason why we can have you know 14 year old um, mexican migrants working on these farms because it, somehow the the bourgeoisie has created a little space yeah they say it's for the person working the small farm the petty bourgeois a farm owner who wants their child to work there even though that is still a money relation itself but instead it's you know farm workers and this is what chavez and huerta fought against um are treated as like a very specific and isolated class and are are um stripped of certain proletarian values um uh the the ability to unionize in the same way the same protections of age um the same uh 
level of pay, right? Right. Yeah. I was. I mean, even just the basic ones of minimum. You know, their their labor is actually worth less, and and so this is you know kind of what compels the the bourgeois ruling class to to make sure that they lean into these sort of racist distinctions between immigration, right? Because it's a legalized, another form of legalized exploitation, um, you know, and especially living out in California, you hear about it all the time where it's like, you know, these factory farms couldn't run without this insanely criminally cheap labor. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, the very last one of his 10 points is uh, free education for all children in public schools. Think about yeah. that. And the abolition of factory labor, right? Which yeah, yeah which goes have, along with the that children shouldn't be forced into wage labor. Yeah, and we and we have absolved uh, uh um not absolved we have abolished a, a lot of it, but certainly in um you know while I don't agree with everything he says, um Chris Catron has a quote that I've always remembered, which is um that the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism is to not be exploited by capitalism, which kind of hits on this distinction between the bourgeois and then what it is that exists outside of it, right? The necessity of states to even reach this bourgeois phase to start this proletarian um, uh, battle and why places like um, Vietnam and uh, Bolivia and, you know, these states don't their their forms of socialism are not exactly the same thing as what Marx is talking about because they have not done so. And so around the world we do have child labor and then even in the states we have child labor in, under specific conditions that help support the ruling class and their monopolies on production. Well, and I'll just uh, use this quote that that's actually about kind of reformism and bourgeois socialism but uh, I think it sums up what you're getting at very well, where he says um, the bourgeois are bourgeois for the benefit of the working class, you know, yes. and that, and that they always use their advantages and that their their high minded liberalism for the benefit of the working class. But of course, for the benefit of the status quo of the working class. Right. So, of course. So so there these are, I think, the most difficult um ideas in there uh, for me just when i read over them were, were was number four when i read the confiscation of the profit pr property of all immigrants and rebels right you know it's like um, and that's immigrants with an e so we're talking e, about people leaving leaving country, not place so it's not coming. the immigrants part it's the rebels right but this is returning to the true conflict that is being presupposed by this text and the revolutionary fervor that is surrounding this work, which is that, you know, we do not need to cede anything to reactionaries, right? Like, I think there is this natural conciliatory, conciliatory element to the, to what is called the left now, um, because of years and years of domination by um by capitalism mm -hmm. by the bourgeois bourgeoisie um and uh, you know because of that we and because of the success of certain pacifist movements you know we can look to people like martin luther king or or gandhi right as successfully making changes towards 
betterment within the bourgeois system for people through pacifism, it has become, you know, anathema to imagine that we might have to fight against the re the reactionary rebellion that follows a authentic revolution or a real revolution, let's say. Um, but I think that's the mindset that we must start taking, that there, there hasn't been some magical pacification of the political realm in the 20th century, but rather we have largely lost in the 20th century, and therefore it becomes more difficult to imagine this sort of conflict. Um, well, yeah, there, I mean, it becomes an almost, um, uh, what is that syndrome where you learn to love your hostages? Oh, uh, um, uh, I, I just had it. Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, I'm like Scandinavia or something. Uh, but, you know, it, you know, when Marx talks about, you know, like all we have to lose is our chains, then this is what he's talking about, you know, and, and there's a certain reactionary tendency where there's a certain Stockholm syndrome for the things that bind us. And yes. I, I think if there's really any point to the Communist Manifesto, it is this, it is that the only way out of this is out of it. You know, yes. uh, the, the only way the proletarian revolution happens is by negating the bourgeois revolution, which means all of it has to go because even the smallest amount that you try and keep it, it kind of poisons the whole well in that sense yes. where so, it becomes, well, what, what, what do you get rid of? What do you, what do you leave? Yeah, what, what do you keep? And what inevitably you're going to keep some kind of system of oppression that's yeah. keeping the working class down because that's how the system functions. It, well, you it see, only functions that way. You see my sneakers behind me. Mm -hmm. God damn. I would be sad if there were no, there there weren't like a range of really cool sneakers the man loves his kicks socialism yeah. but you know what are we really talking about if everyone could live a better life if everyone could have a, a standard of living that would improve things incredibly what would come out of that my assumption is something far more rich and and uh and meaningful than whatever it is I have right now. And so there's that speculative gap, that leap, um, mm -hmm. what, William, what William James would call a leap of faith. And he was talking about it in a religious context, but I think it's meaningful pragmatically to apply to in, in a more uh, practical political sense that like there is this gap in speculation. And this is important to Marx when he talks about the materialism that defines the way that we are going to do things is that we're going to have to look past what is known, what is familiar to jump into this next phase, into this next epoch. Now, one thing I want to go back towards very quickly mm -hmm. are two categories that he sort of, uh, that outline the proletariat. On the one side, you have the petty bourgeoisie, right? Which he defines as a, the like small business owner. This is something we talked about in the last episode. Um, the um, uh, worker who's gained enough money to feel some connection to the capitalist system, etc. Um, and their function as essentially conservative, right? And and we can see this in like 
um, the affluent religious community or, um, you know, the the liberal elite of a city, but that isn't actually or, or, or part... like the salaried class, you know, or the salaried class. Like yes, as they, the core. They, they feel like you know, in some ways, if you're offered a salary, it feels like you're finally escaping wage labor, but you're actually selling your, your wage wholesale. It's actually yes. a worse deal, um, you know, and, but they give you a bigger figure to, you know, choose the it deal. Appear like it. it's not. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and their function, especially in Marx's view, is this very reactionary one where, um, you know, they kind of act as a interlocutor between the two classes at the to the benefit of the bourgeoisie yes and and it, and also in the sense of you know it's the hope that you see all the time right in this country where it's like people actively voting against or acting against their own class consciousness because oh well well maybe next week maybe next year yes. i will too be rich and and we also see it with the mass fetishization of billionaires and the people, you know, um, I've recently, you know, the UFC, it's heavyweight champion left mm -hmm. and didn't take the big contract. And the amount of vitriol that I've seen against him while parroting the the um, statements management. of his parents' company and management. It, this is just, this is a tendency of the petty bourgeoisie, a uh, petty bourgeois mindset. Um, then on the other side of the proletariat, is the lumpen proletariat which uh he has some strong words for right you know i think he calls them scum um but he's really talking about people who are not working you know i'm sure alcoholics would come in this class i think ironically marx was known as like someone who when you came to his house it was going to be a complete mess he wouldn't know what to do when he was writing. So I find it fascinating that he kind of addresses this group, but they're ultimately the people that he sees as not being politically engageable, right? And because yeah, they, of that... Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, they, they had to give him a deadline to write the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Because he was dragging his feet so much. They're like, listen, we need it by February. We're going to somebody else. And he's like, okay, yeah. I'll do it. Yeah. But, I, I, but ultimately, this is one of the places where I have the biggest conflict with Marx, um, I look to the Black Panthers as like one of the greatest indications of uh, the possibility of motivating the lumpen proletariat, mm -hmm. right? Because, and and then also third world nationalism, mm -hmm. um, which where you can see anywhere from like Egypt in the 60s to the Vietnam War um, uh, and the Viet Cong, Zapatistas. The, various, the Zapatistas, mm -hmm. et cetera, that there are means of motivating these groups. And like I saw a recent study about the riots, um, uh, about police brutality uh, during COVID and um, or during the pandemic lockdown. Um, and what it said was that majority of these people were not leftist, right? They were people who are directly affected by um, the like legitimate surrounding concerns. And so while I I understand what he's saying, and I think there is some truth to it, I, I think that that's something that socialists have to engage, which is there is proletariat and lumpen proletariat. And how is it that we can best engage with these people who have abdicated politics? Because as we have in our country, 50% of people who do not vote, right, who do not see it as having any function, 
So this yeah, is and the a quote unquote, unquote ground free country of the world, uh, the candidate, if you ran not voting as a candidate, would have won every election. I I don't have the stat in front of me, but yeah. since like 1960 or something. Yes. Um, and and yeah, and I think that's where the fertile ground is, but also where you know perhaps we can learn from and grow from Marx and and his ideas, which are at this point fucking almost 200 years old. So, um, you know, I I think it's important for us to look at this and study because it is so informative, but I also see people who get caught up in it where it's like, like there, there wasn't, forget about the internet, there wasn't cars, right? There wasn't, I mean, there were rifles, there were muskets, but there weren't even guns really when he was doing this. Um, So a lot has changed, right? There wasn't radio, television. I think as we get into capital, like questions about algorithms, about the way that um, uh, value can be can, can be created wholesale out of a complete specter of scarcity, right? Um, like the, how these new financial mechanisms are the harbinger of a shift that Marx himself talked about, which was the point at which uh, we are. Uh, where production is no longer done by human beings, right? Mm-hmm. So that's going to be something that we get to later. But in the third substantial section, um, he then gets into um, various forms of pre-existing socialism, right? So the first one he talks about is um, feudal socialism. And uh, so for f- feudal socialism, this is... Um, essentially uh, a sort of kind of egalitarian reform. And this is like, I think, directly um, uh, referencing the Orleanist success of the 1830 revolution, um, where there is this idea that, uh, oh, we can, um, we can resolve our problems from, as well as uh, reforms in England, um, in 1832, that, that we can resolve the problems of the proletariat through a feudal uh, regime, right? And, you know, this at bottom, he says, is impossible. And I, I think that's it's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this section is important in, in the two sense that it's like, you can't go backwards, you know, because there's always this section of utopianism specifically, but socialism as well, where if only we can return to these like feudal modes of production or the guild system or something. And, and, you know, he rightly says the cat's out of the bag. I mean, maybe Mm -hmm. you can do that isolated somewhere in a small community or something, but globally, it's not, it's not going to happen. And and his other big point is that this also, it has to be a wholesale revolution. You can't do this by a series of reforms. And these are the kind of to political factions that he warns us against. Yes, and 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 this and, and that your last point is continues throughout all of these definitions of what's going on in socialism up until the point that he writes this. So the um you know uh, the second group he talks about is is uh, petty bourgeois socialism, right? Which you know uh, in in France you have this conflict going on against um uh, uh louis philippe the first and the uh and then the orleanist turned against him the um 
uh follows followers of august tears um uh turn against him and they start something what they uh, what they called um the banquet right so mm-hmm. the i think i'm forgetting the exact term for it and uh maybe i'll f- remember it sometime now but it's it's largely unimportant essentially because the government was blocking the ability for people to politically um uh organize uh they they had decided to make this pacifist attempt to go around that have these banquets together and and through that they thought they could work towards what england had a parliamentary system a system that would help france where they had incredible poverty towns that were entirely destitute 140,000 children on the street right um and again this is something that um you know ultimately is looking to go backwards as a form of of politics as uh to to some bourgeois form that has already shown itself to not be able to function right that it is intrinsically anti-revolutionary and it um it what it what it wishes to create is a um very simple set of political relations yeah well and this is like i think this is where you see the hegelianism of marx right because he's essentially in this part he's fighting against kind of the positivist outlook of like saint simon or or these other like french sociologists and you know he he's seeking the negative form and and i think that's important because he as he so eloquently points out in this manifesto is that you know reforms will only reform itself to be what it already is because the system is based upon the appropriation and exploitation of the proletariat in all its forms and and so that's his that's what he's pushing against you know yeah you you entirely you, you fixed on what what I had forgotten and 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 Saint Simone you know he talks about the religious Christian asceticism with the socialist twist right and there he's directly referencing Saint Simone who was a uh a, a um, French thinker of the eighteen teens heavily influenced by freedom in America who who saw that you know that politically we should move away from state control um he was heavily influenced by adam smith and this is something we referenced earlier and he saw in all of this all of this writing great possibilities for freedom and and saw this as a grounds for socialism and in this regard when we historically think about socialism through the filter of Marx and then later the Russian Revolution, a lot of the details and nuances of how socialism was heterogeneous get lost. Mm. But um, I think referencing Saint-Simon is um, uh, a- a- extremely interesting. Um, you know, he wrote this long text, Industry, and in Industry, he, it, he makes these declarations, but the declarations are closer to what we would call left libertarianism than we would conventional socialism though he would be considered a socialist and then later 
in European development, we would have the um, left liber libertarian or libertarian socialist position. And Marx says that does not work, right? Because it ultimately brings us back to um, an untenable set of bourgeois relationships that just cannot survive. So the third form that he describes is German or true socialism. And, you know, he said, <laughs> yeah. So in, in this regard, he's, he's being a bit, a bit facetious, but um, there's, there's um, multiple interesting points. So coming out of this uh, bourgeois revolution in 1830, which um, um, puts uh, Louis Philippe in the seat of power as the monarch of of France. Um, you you have uh, simultaneously many French socialists writing. Saint Simon is one of them, right? Um, and their ideas are uh, are moved to Germany, right? They they immigrate to Germany, and. In this process, he says that, you know, they become, uh, they lose their meaning, their material context, um, because, you know, the French conditions, the French working conditions and political conditions do not transfer with the work. Um, uh, for instance, he, he says, um, Here's a quote. For instance, beneath the French criticism of the economic functions of money, they wrote alienation of humanity. And beneath the French criticism of the bourgeois state, they wrote dethronement of the category of the general and so forth. Um, the introduction of these philosophical phrases at the back of the French historical criticisms, they dubbed philosophy of action, true socialism. German science of socialism, German foundation of socialism, and so on, right? And so what he's getting at is at the beginning, as the Germans are appropriating these um, French ideas of socialism and developing them, they are abstracting them, right? And they are not, uh, they are not being treated in a concrete way. But what he does say is that as... Um, people have to get to the actual work of doing socialism, that something comes out of this, that something meaningful comes out of this. And that is a genuine critique of German society, right? That it, it creates some potential for proletarian transformation. Yeah, and they, you know, it, his his aim, I mean, and he's also like working with a lot of German socialists. So Absolutely. Obviously, the aim is then to to apply this to Germany and but but recognize that it is different. Right. And I think this is like if you're historically study communism or socialism or whatever, it, it's kind of the fascinating thing how it almost functioned in Germany, how it came into place in Russia, uh, how it happened in Cuba or China or Vietnam, um, because they're all very different places with very different prevailing material conditions, right? Yes. And while this is the shortest part of the book, it's in some ways 
very interesting for this because yes. he's identifying that okay here we're using all these great ideas and look at all this cool stuff um but when it comes to germany it becomes you know and it's almost a stab in the back of feuerbach or something where it's like this is the end of german idealism and the beginning yes. of a dialectical materialism absolutely and you know i think there's some direct reference to some again lasalle um who you know influenced by David Ricardo is uh, argues for the iron law of wages, which we can see in like, um, you know, like the centrist, you know, a thousand dollar a month, you know, what, what do they call it? Whatever the UDI universal or whatever universal basic. Yeah. Universal basic income or whatever. Right. Like that, you know, uh, Ricardo saw that there needed to be, um some system that guaranteed uh living value to people but he did so in an artificial way and this is something that LaSalle um uh, believed in uh intensely and we, which was an element of what was going on in Germany similarly LaSalle was extremely influenced by Fichte and Fichte's um address to uh the German people I believe it's called and in in that address, what Fichte is, you know, centering upon is the idea, and this is what really came of the German Revolution was its one major success, and that was to unite people around a common culture, a common language, right between all these states and Prussia and you know Vienna and. Uh, in in all these German states in in Western Poland, um, and that that statism is not is at odds with what Marx is ultimately envisioning. So again, there is this this work that's being done, and the fact that you must engage with the workers of a state towards you know betterment, but. Ultimately, as we see in capital, it does not end there because the basic bourgeois assumptions of thinkers like Ricardo on LaSalle, um, their influence on, on his influence on LaSalle or um, Smith's on Saint-Simon undermine the actual socialist concepts that are going to be materially realized in, in the conflict for society between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie um yeah. yeah i mean i i think in some ways you know marx is in a lot of ways he's trying to preach to his kind you know um because he believes that the actual revolution will come from the boots on the ground and and always argued it against this like slow long-term education of the proletariat because they have nothing to learn they they or rather they need not learn anything because it's their experience that is informing this whole process yeah and and in this regard that kind of pe petty bourgeois revolution an element he doesn't talk about as much but he mentions he may mention some elsewhere but you know like many some of these revolutions the the um in the german revolution like some some moments of it in i'm not sure if it's uh, in dresden or where but like, you know, you have students jumping up to, you know, lead this and you'll see this 
a ton in the multiple Russian revolutions, particularly of 1905, um, where, uh, you know, ideas are at the front of why people are acting. But the proletariat is steeped in these conditions and has an internal motivation towards that, which has been sucked of them, um, you know, like a, a vampire by capitalism in the present. And so like bringing these to light, understanding why they aren't coming to light, understanding the kind of change conditions and what it will, what it is that will motivate people to action, right. Mm. Are important things for leftists to think about. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, these three elements that he's talking about all, uh, come together as, their a b and c of this first section on forms of socialism and this true form of socialism for the germans is still using these naturalized and i would say he's clearly saying influenced by the idealists these these major concepts um of of uh you know the, these total ideal uh, um concepts that are for him a uh philosophical fantasy right mm. and that impediment is, yeah an impediment and there's this brutally destructive character as he describes it of of socialism in action that destroys all eternal truths right like the eternal truth of justice or whatever and so like when you run against say when derrida later on in his life was trying to move away from the sense that his work was relativist he comes to this sort of ontological or post-ontological conclusion that justice is you know what it, what centers the work of deconstruction and of his philosophy like those bourgeois tendencies they they do not help us they are obfuscating right and and it, it, because justice isn't something that you can hold on to right you can put into action the concept of justice when you see injustice and this reminds me of an adorno quote where he says um you know essentially that we have to move past positive freedom the only freedom is found in re in responding to unfreedom you know he says this in uh, negative dialectics um and you know th this is what marx is sort of outlining that we are in this constant critical relationship with reality with the reality of proletarian life and that that will produce the ideas it's not that the ideas are going to precede it right he is He's outlining this idea of communism, but it's something that's coming out of a revolution and that will change when he writes a text later, right? What would fact that the, the ideas are the, the, the very things that hold us back, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of his whole mantra, right? Is, is this destruction of these universal truths and that they must be destroyed and, and from the ashes, something new can be made. And, and it's only until we can actually destroy those that we get to move forward. And, and then until we do, we're caught in this kind of capitalist limbo. Um, and, uh, you know, and not that we want to end the episode in this very like unsteady ground, but I think that's where we have to. And that's where, 
Marx is writing from, that's where we find ourselves today. Um, while there is a lot of hope, um, there's a lot of uncertainty, and it's it's the uncertainty that's actually our ally. 